you very much. I'm so glad Pastor Mike introduced us to that hymn not long ago. uh, Ladies, you've encouraged our hearts today, so thank you very, very much. Take your Bibles, please, and let's go to um, the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Excuse me, Revelations. We're going to talk about the church of Ephesus in Revelation in just a little bit. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to have a a bit of an introduction. We're going to set the table this morning uh, for what we'll be discussing together over the next couple weeks. Uh, In relationship to what Pastor Mike had preached, we were able to live stream from California last Sunday. And I'm so glad that we did. Your worship was a tremendous encouragement to our heart. And his theme of remembering, and I don't know if you remembered, at least part of his proposition was remembering is acting. If we're truly going to remember, we're going to take what we know to be true and what we remember scripturally, and we're going to give it hands and feet. uh, So we're going to set the table. We're going to remember a little bit uh, today. And we're going to set the table for the hands and feet of what Pastor Mike described last week so our whole church again can be renewed, reminded of, we can remember together what being a disciple-making believer uh, truly is, okay? What being a disciple-making believer truly is. Uh, Before I do that, um, Rick Romero, who we prayed for earlier, has been um, undergoing some more serious health issues, but he wrote a note, and I thought, since it was a note of encouragement, I'd read it to you. He said, I want to thank each and every one of you, uh, dear brothers and sisters, for your prayers. I thank God that he sees fit to conform us to be more like his son, Jesus. God's love, mercy, righteousness, and grace through his sovereignty knows no bounds. So to all who may be struggling In one way or another, be encouraged. For when we are weak, Jesus is strong. So thanks for that word of encouragement, Rick. I know you're probably live streaming this morning and tremendously helpful. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning, and then we'll continue. Father in heaven, we certainly need the assistance of your spirit. We thank you for the miracles of inspiration and preservation of your word for us in this time we thank you for the indwelling of the spirit who through his illumination takes the significance of the inspired written preserved page and makes it applicable to our hearts we need that lord as we depend on the spirit of god to take the word of god and help us give it hands and feet As we remember, Lord, help us to be acting upon what we know to be true. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, This has nothing to do with my message, but I was reading this week. Do you know if you read your Bible just 12 minutes a day, you can read the whole Bible in a year? I just want to encourage you with that. I just want to encourage you with that. I've got some friends in China, many of you do, and uh, the Chinese government just mandated that Google, just in China... Uh, remove the Bible in electronic format in any way, okay? And so, so many of us, uh, 
we, we walk around these days uh, often without our Bibles because we have our Bibles. And uh, could you imagine living in a country where um, all you had was this? Um, value the written page. We don't worship the written page. We worship the God of the message of the written page. Uh, but while you have your Bibles, uh, 12 minutes a day, to read through the whole Bible in one year. So you do the math. 24 minutes a day, you can read it in six months. How do you like that? Anyways, I thought that was interesting and significant. You say, Pastor Tim, you don't know how slow I read. Well, 24 minutes a day, maybe a whole year. Who knows? Anyways, as many of you know, I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up in this church. My dad became the pastor of this church in 1972, and I was about three and a half years old. My parents were wonderful people. They were what all of us younger, maybe now middle-aged parents, desire to be in time. They made mistakes. They experienced much more spiritual growth than failure. And they always were growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a wonderful family life. My parents sacrificed, they loved, they served. They were obsessed with pursuing sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness. And they loved the Lord's people about as much as they loved the Lord. All the while, we kids had a front row seat to the arena of ministry. Like we lived in a parsonage. That's the house the church sometimes allow a pastor and his family to live in, often on the church property to help them save money. The parsonage that we grew up in used to stand on the open grassy area out here to your right that we drive by each and every week. Anyway, anything and everything that was the glory and agony of the church we saw as kids. It was our reality to experience just about every part of people ministry with our parents. As much as they may have wanted to shelter us from the more difficult realities of ministry, of all kinds of people, it was quite frankly impossible for them to do so. We also saw many wonderful things. I heard my mom and dad lead people to Christ in our living room. I overheard many long conversations my dad had with hurting people on the phone, and he'd finish those phone calls with some of the most tender, scripture-saturated prayers of encouragement I've ever heard in my life unto this day. My mom rejoiced, she wept, and she prayed with many ladies of the church as well. They were tremendous servants of others in their home. That's it. Uh, that's the statement. I don't know that I've ever seen a couple in any local church practice the gift of hospitality like my parents did. My parents were a team in ministry. Personally, at home together, and with others when the church was gathered. They did what full-time vocational ministers of the gospel do. They eat, drink, and sleep ministry. 
We had a tremendous effort in children's ministry while I was growing up here that my mom oversaw. She was a tremendous teacher of children. She was able to take the Bible and just make it come alive to our ears and to our hearts and to our lives. It was my mom's Sunday school lesson when I was five years old. When she was preaching on 1 Corinthians 6, she said, you remember this? Oh, yes. <laughs> and she taught me that thieves won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about what being a thief was. And I had a suspicion my mom knew I was. And I was a thief. There was no one at five years old that could more secretly, at least I thought, or deceptively steal things at the grocery store when I would, I would go shopping with my mom like I did. Later to come out to find out my mom had eyes in the back of her head like all moms do. And she knew. She would provide monthly activities for our children. She would oversee our vacation Bible schools. Back in the early 70s, we had a wonderful Awana program on Wednesday nights. We look forward to being with the kids and playing a game called Steal the Bacon. You ever play Steal the Bacon? Is that just Pastor Kent, you're an I's age group? Steal the Bacon's a wonderful game. Good memories. As I grew up, our youth group was quite small, just a handful of us, maybe four or five. But my parents always made it as special as possible. We did a lot of normal things that churches just did back in the day and still do. We had annual missions conferences. We had annual special meetings. Maybe you would call them revival meetings. We've always championed expository preaching. We would have preaching conferences. I pray that's always the case from this pulpit. We always had wonderful Christmas programs. They were always very unique. We called them Christmas cantatas. Do you remember those? I'm not sure any visitor knew exactly what the word cantata meant. But we had them. I can remember one person of Italian descent walking out after the program and said... I don't know what a cantata is. But if that's what a cantata is, I really enjoyed it. My folks were very passionate about music and the right kind of music in a reverent way in a local church setting. They built children's choirs. We even had a youth choir for a time. They were the beginning of our adult choir. And they did it intentionally. And through those programs, the gospel went forward with power and with strength. Our Easter service was also very special. Every Easter Sunday morning, my dad had a flower corsage for my mom laying out on the kitchen table. We always had a glorious time celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Of course, many guests would come on that particular Lord's Day, and the gospel would be heard loud and clear among the offering of music and preaching. Back in the day, we also had a bus ministry. Even on Sunday mornings, for quite some time, my dad and I would load up, 
possibly with my brother at times, seven o'clock in the morning and head out into the area to pick up kids from church. I look back on that now, understanding my dad was the driver of that first little bus that we had years ago. And I look back now knowing the, the burden of what Sundays are to pastors and he would be on that bus every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. When I'm just rallying my mind and my heart to be ready to be a worshiper, he was out driving a bus, but he took us with him. And that was a wonderful time. In time, we actually graduated to a bigger bus. And we added on a Wednesday night bus route, which some of you even participated in as time passed. Back in the day, we even had Monday night door-to-door visitation. Some of you may come from churches where that was a staple. I think maybe it moved to Thursday nights at one point. But I can remember every Sunday morning, uh, pastor, my dad, standing up and thanking people that would come to visitation. And he would say, well, Brother Ed and I were there, but, but thank you, Ed, for coming. And then he would just be quiet for a minute and let everyone else think about why they weren't there. We had a men's prayer breakfast started. It still continues to this day. That's essential. It was then, it is now. A continued emphasis on prayer needs to remain here. Let us increase more and more. We began Grace Bible Institute years ago in the early 80s. It's now Great Lakes Bible Institute. I believe Pastor Mavar was even part of that training in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. But there were others in the 1980s decade, like Joseph Abraham, who went out into full-time foreign missions work in large part because of the influence and training he received at Grace Bible Institute. While I was growing up here, we had successful building programs. We had cottage prayer meetings for special events. We had a typical four-service-a-week structure. Ever since our church had opened its doors for the first time, in 1948. Just about every ministerial I you could dot or T you could cross, we tried to cover. In 1991, we attempted to grow the church more through our church's most uh, passionate outreach to teens that it had ever had. For 13 years, we had a youth outreach called The War. Teens divided up from the community into two teams, Army versus Navy, and we would compete in games, watch skits, laugh, have all-you-can-eat pizza, and then listen to a gospel message for several nights, just one week a year. And a number of kids made professions of faith, some of whom are still in our church to this day, married with children. We transitioned that in time to what we now know as the ultimate challenge, And Vacation Bible School for us turned into GBDC, Grace Bible Day Camp, to this day. And it's still a gospel effort. All of this history includes necessary functions, ministries, and service of God's people in the church. The ministry described, plus many more ministries not mentioned, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, and so forth. 
We're inclusive of a flurry of activity of spirit-gifted people here at Grace Baptist Church, which became Grace Church of Mentor in 1980. And to be sure, we're forever thankful to the people of God who love, serve, forgive, witness, and do it over time and again. Many churches have faithful people ministering in necessary ways like we've described, and they've been doing so for decades. There's a phenomena, though, that's occurred among these very busy churches full of faithful people. And this phenomenon has been occurring for almost five decades now in our country. The phenomenon is, though churches are very busy doing all of these things, they grow, they plateau, they decline, and sometimes they close their doors. The Barna Group, which is a church research group, and in addition to a group from some researchers in the Southern Baptist Convention, revealed that before the pandemic, 3% of churches in our country were experiencing any kind of measurable growth, numerically. The 3% of that growth, these studies tell us, were among churches that were bent more on disciple-making and spiritual reproduction. So 97% of our churches in our land were in some form of plateau, decline, or process of closure. This has puzzled me and our leadership here for some time. And then the pandemic hit. Any church that was in plateau or decline struggled even more. We've been puzzled because we know Jesus prophesied in Matthew 16 that he would build his church. So why are 97% of the churches in our country plateauing, declining, and closing? Now, to be honest with his prophecy in Matthew 16, we do know that Jesus is building his church. That was a prophecy of global scope when Jesus told it. From Acts 2 to today until the coming of Christ, he will be building his church throughout the world. So we ask ourselves for here, how do we measure or should we even desire to measure whether Christ is building his church among us? I believe we should have a longing to know that we're part of this divine, spiritual wonder the Lord is doing in the building of this reality called the body of Christ. So again, how do we measure or discern if the Lord is, Jesus is building his church here? Well, there's a number of ways that I do that as a pastor, and we try to do this as a people. How do we measure? We always look at the seven churches of Revelation. We'll consider one here at the end this morning, as you already turned to Revelation 2. We look at these seven churches of Revelation to see if 
One of these issues Jesus called sin or apostasy was the spiritual cancer in that church. Now we know of the seven churches he addressed that only one was doing a faithful job. Six weren't. So we have to look at those six factors or more in each and we have to discern, is that an issue at Grace Church of Mentor? An unconfessed perpetual reality. So that's one thing that we do. If there's a sin, that could be the reason. Jesus asks those churches long bent in apostasy and sin described to repent or he would remove their lampstand of influence. Do you remember that? Reading those seven churches. The next place I go is to the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy. One and two Timothy, as some of you call it, or Titus. Those letters written to Ephesus, the church at Crete, pastored by Timothy and Titus to measure our obedience as to the imperatives of, of, of those letters from Paul to those young pastors. I mean, those are the inspired, preserved pages for us given to the church by which she is to measure her obedience to the function of the church. They're written to pastors. So certainly not just Revelation churches, but these letters to pastors are we owning the reality of the content and the practice of these pastorals. If together we don't recognize, hang on with me here, please. If together we don't recognize from studying the churches of Revelation any unaddressed, unconfessed apostasy or sin, if together we discern from the pastorals that we're doing the best that we possibly can to own and obey those scriptures, and if we're busy about ministry in all the ways we described above by way of introduction, then again, why are 97% of churches in our country struggling? Why are they plateauing and declining and many closing? Before the pandemic, it had reached about 1,800 churches a month closing in our country. Why are these churches that are struggling full of faithful people who are scratching their heads when they don't itch, asking themselves, what in the world is going on? We did all that we were told to do. We're faithful. We're passionate. Why is the lampstand being removed? What do we do when people who have been faithful, singing, teaching, cleaning, mowing, maintenancing, fellowshipping, among all the other virtuous things that are the flurry of necessary ministry, and when times of struggle come along and the church begins to seem to die and go away, I thought if we did all these things that Jesus would build his church here. Apparently, friends, 
the doing of ministry business, going through the motion, tried to choose my words very carefully here, going through the motion of necessary service to our Lord is good, but it's only part of our individual, personal, worship-filled lives before the Lord. Here's my proposition for the next few times we're together. We all are to own individually a personal mission that we bring to the collective obligation of mission that the church bears. We all individually, personally, are to own a personal mission that we bring then. We live it out there, and then we bring it to the collective obligation of mission that the church bears. The prayerful, anticipatory, and deliberate way in which we do this individualized mission together as the church is the way that Christ builds the church. I'll restate that. The prayerful, anticipatory, and deliberate way in which we do this individualized mission together as the church is the way that Christ builds his church. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. There's one church here that many of you are familiar with if you're newer to the Lord, and I know we have a number of folks like that here. There are seven churches listed here. You can study them in time on your own or with your discipler. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already said, describes these churches. One was okay, six had some issues. But there's one church in this group, and it's the first church mentioned when you read it, it doesn't look like they have an issue. And it's the church of Ephesus. When I read this as a boy, as a teen, as a seminary student, and even as a pastor, I look at the way this church is described compared to the other five churches that have ailments in these chapters, and I wonder how in the world could this church be told by the Lord Jesus Christ that his lampstand of influence is going to be removed from them and they'll be closed. Verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. For those of you who are newer to the Lord, the angel word here just means messenger, so this would have been a direct address to the pastor. To the pastor. If you go to chapter 2 and verse 8, you're going to see the same thing. Chapter 2 and verse 12, the same wording. Chapter 2 and verse 18, the same wording. I think you get what's happening here. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. Your Bible translation probably has these words in red, which in paper copies of the Bible usually indicates that Jesus is speaking. So this is the head of the church, Jesus. It's the chief cornerstone of the church, Jesus, speaking to the pastor of this church. Because people typically become like their pastors given enough time. Just like children typically become like their parents Students become like their teachers. Countries become like their leaders, given enough time. 
pastor bears the responsibility to the angel of the church of Ephesus write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this I know your deeds and of course God the spirit omnisciently knows everything doesn't he about us individually and then about us collectively he knows everything now look look at what he admires this is this is amazing to me because what he admires is incredibly detailed and incredibly virtuous and noble and yet the lampstand of influence is going to be removed I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. So they're even addressing false teachers and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love therefore remember there was a place where you began to fall and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place until you repent yet this you do have it goes back to a compliment here that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans for which I also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit of God says to the churches to him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Again, it's easy to note that which is virtuous about this church. And to me, this church looks like your run-of-the-mill conservative Bible-teaching church. Like if you took the church constitution of Ephesus, it would be relatively bulletproof, theologically, philosophically, and mostly practically. This is a strong church. I would say from my studies, my history, hopefully I trust from the authority of God's word that Ephesus would be today possibly one of those 97% of churches that are experienced some growth. You remember that's where Timothy pastored. That's where Paul went first. The church began. You can study that in Acts very easily. It had growth, probably the, the most sizable growth of any first century church that we know of, end up with multiple churches within the city of Ephesus. The largest in number that we possibly know. But when Paul writes to Timothy, that's about 30 years before he's writing this to the apostle John in AD 95. So something's happened in about a generation of time where this church was, came from loving passionately the Lord Jesus Christ, their first love, and doing his deeds. 
to where now they were just going through the motions of virtuous, necessary fellowship, worship, serving, teaching, caring for one another, and yet they were struggling. And Jesus was about to close their doors. How do you know that the land stamp's been removed ultimately? All I can tell you is we know it's gone when a church is closed. And the Lord is long patient with his people, isn't he? I mean, think of the patience that he's demonstrated here to not just Ephesus. And when you look at their vice, it's still worthy of closure if they don't repent from it as much as those who had given uh, space in their flock for the influence of the Nicolaitans, which was one of the most gross forms of falsehood any church could embrace in any culture. So I find it interesting here that the Lord Jesus Christ sees both as sin, but has extended long patience and still gives them an opportunity to repent and to change. So what's he asking them to repent from? Yes, they've lost their first love, but he gets very, very particular here. Remember when you started falling. Remember when your failure started. And then he qualifies and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Do the deeds that you did at first. The word first here is not the Greek word chronos, it's the Greek word protos, where we get our English word priority. Chronos is time. Protos is priority. What were these deeds they did first? There's a lot written about that question. Most people settle, and I believe it's right to do so, that the deeds they did at first had everything to do with the last words that Jesus spoke on earth before his ascension. Do you remember Christ is martyred for our sin? He was brutally beaten and killed because of our sin. He was buried, he rose again, and then he appeared on the earth for a stretch of days. Do you remember that? The Bible says that, you know, lots of, lots of proofs of the resurrection, but one of them certainly was, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, there's about 500 some people that he had appeared to and on his way to the day of his ascension, whatever mount of his ascension was, Acts chapter 1, he's, he's forecasting a time when he would finally be with his followers for a last time. And you can follow Christ's words in the Gospels as he's telling his followers that he's going ahead of them he wants them to gather and so forth. And I personally believe you can study it out on your own that by the time we get to Matthew 28, which we'll look at next week and the week after that, the time we get to Acts chapter 1, which is the message of what we know to be the Great Commission, Christ's last words on earth, 
I believe that there's probably a minimum of 500 people listening to that Great Commission charge. I know other numbers are mentioned in relationship to the prayer meeting that was happening in that text, but I believe when he's gathered the people on this mount, his followers is probably at least 500. And he gives them a command. He makes a statement in the form of what we know to be a prophecy. You 500 shall be my witnesses. Marchu reo, where we get our English word martyr. You will be my martyrs. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. In Matthew 28, 19, that we'll look at next week, it actually comes in the form of an imperative. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. You will be my witnesses. This is how Matthew records it. This is how Luke records Christ's post-resurrection, final day on earth, final words, and his final words are to, are to come to the ears of those 500 listeners as their first marching orders right out of boot camp. So when John says, go back and trace the day where you began to fall away from being a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ in your Jerusalem, personally. Go back to that day and, re and repent and do the first things. Do the first things. The first things for us have everything to do with Christ's last words. Why does a solid church like Ephesus, why are solid churches all over our land, plateauing, declining? Is Jesus not building his church? I tell you that Jesus is always building his church. We've already stated that fact. That's a global prophecy. But you can be busy about the work of ministry and not be healthy. This church, like any other church that's Ephesus-like, can dot all your theological I's, cross all of your philosophical T's, and have hands and feet and be very busy, and my goodness, we're busy. A full house like this on Sunday morning, and I suspect next Sunday morning will be packed to the gills with folks that are coming back healthy. Praise God for that. Apparently, Ephesus wasn't having attendance problems as we know history. And yet the Lord Jesus still could go to them as a strong, packed house church and say, you're going to close. I will close you if you don't repent. And who's he speaking to? To the angel of the church. Speaking to me. Speaking to these guys. 
So apparently the pastor of Ephesus at that time probably was not Timothy. We don't know who it was. Some historians speculate. But apparently that pastor had stopped doing in his own life that which Jesus commanded on the day of his ascension. He stopped personalizing his own ownership of being a gospel witness in the town and the city of Ephesus. And the church had commensurately become like him. He was preaching, it says it here, right? He was confronting falsehood, it says it here. This was a theologically sound church and a sound pastor. But there was one thing that stopped, and it, 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 is, it is a haunting thing for pastors to think of this. And you help me with this text as we go through it next week in Matthew 28. Just help me with it. I'm asking you for your help. It's a haunting thing for pastors to know that we can be busy about many good things and necessary things. We stand before the Lord someday, Hebrews 13, 17 says, and we give an account for not just our lives and our families, but for your life and for your ministry, right? And what do we need to give an account for? We want to give an account with joy. Now, as I understand Revelation 2, as I understand the pastorals, and I understand all the things that we've talked about here. Apparently, the judge at the Bema seat is Jesus Christ. Apparently, it's going to be Jesus in the flesh. Apparently, it's going to be his purifying eyes of fire, omnisciently gazing into our souls, knowing everything about what we did and didn't do. Apparently, we're going to be able to see his scarred hands and his feet. Apparently, we're going to have an optic of the reason actually why he came. An optical reminder of why he came. For me as a pastor, did you love me? Well, Jesus... I worked 70 hours a week. I, I preached expositionally. I stood against falsehood, stood against apostasy. We did it together. Didn't bat a thousand, but boy, we sure tried to do the right thing as much as we could. And faithful people, they're a busy people. They persevered well. They did a great job, Lord Jesus. But you closed us. So I really don't know what I think he's going to do if I'm allowed to have a sanctified imagination I think he's going to lift up his hands he's going to point to the scars he might reveal his feet and say you forgot this well I preached about it I had invitations for people to be saved. People did get saved when I had invitations. No, Tim, you forgot this. And men are. 
As a matter of fact, Tim, the only people you know in your town are the people who are members of your church. You never even opened yourself up to be known by those who I came to die for. The person who is in love with their first love allows the Spirit of God to develop within them over time a passion to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among those that they rub shoulders with each and every day in their natural rhythms of their own life, It's not a popular message, but it's a necessary message. So you say, what is then the mission of the church? Folks, the whole book of Matthew that we'll get to next week, the whole book of Matthew to me is is a big crescendoing message unto the final chapter where Jesus in that last words, day of ascension sermon said, go into the world and make disciples. That's the climax and the end of the whole book. And around him were these 500 people, most of whom would not be full-time vocational ministers like us. People of all sorts of occupations. For this mission, this command, these first things which demonstrate really our true love, For the King of kings and Lord of lords, our crucified, risen, ascended, coming again Jesus, is the message upon the lips of everyone in this room as we pray to reach those around us who don't know Jesus. It is a sobering thing. Were the people at Ephesus saved? Yes. Were there people saved at all of these churches mentioned in Revelation? Absolutely. Are they going to all be in heaven someday? I'm assuming faith because they were written to the word of God and there's that anticipation that they would respond and repent. When it comes to truly understanding not just what our mere obligations are to one another, but understanding mission That's why Grace Church of Mentor exists, to glorify God by doing what? John 17, Jesus prayed it himself. I came to glorify you, Lord, through my obedience. And what's that obedience? Philippians 2, Jesus became obedient even unto the death of the cross. And why did he die? For our sins and for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 2. This is the message owned by every one of those 500 people. And it's to be owned by us. And the speaking of that message demonstrates to people that we're fully in love with our our Jesus. And I know it sounds so cliche, but we love to talk about who we're in love with, don't we? And even pastors need to rethink that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ on a regular basis. 
Those are the first things. Those are the first things. Pray about that. Uh, look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and we'll dive into there uh, next week as we prepare to make sure that we're doing our best to listen to the message of the Lord Jesus to this pastor at Ephesus some time ago. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Uh, we thank you for this uh, joyful but sobering reminder uh, for me, for everyone in leadership here, for the flock. Lord, we prayerfully ask you to teach us, remind us, and then help us by way of remembering to be acting and praying for opportunities to act, to build gospel relationships, and to speak the gospel, whether it's heard or not. We'll leave the results up to you. To speak the gospel of our loving Savior and whom we are in love with to as many people in the natural rhythms of our existence as possible. Lord, help us to obey you in this way. And help us, Lord, to have our minds and our hearts continually tender to what we'll learn as we're together the next couple weeks before we begin the book of Job together this year. That each and every day, not just Judgment Day, we can know that we're walking in a manner pleasing to our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.